Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ken. And I'm Tessa. In this, our second season of How to Choose, we're exploring the topic of decisions at work. We're joined by a range of guests who speak about decision-making in the context of their work. Now, Ken, do you remember the hype around the last election and all of the teal candidates that came out? Yep, absolutely. There was a lot of public interest in this because there was a group of women, mostly, I think, who ran independently and were not supportive of the government's position on issues such as climate change uh, and gender issues. And so it was fascinating to see how there was a real movement of public support for those candidates and several of them were elected in key seats. Yeah, it really bucked all of the political commentators' expectations too. It was one of those kind of grand full of support. So today we are lucky enough to get to hear from one of them. It's going to be a really unique perspective on politics in Australia, I think. You know, we're in a new era. Absolutely. So today we're listening to an interview with Allegra Spender, who is an Australian politician and businesswoman who has been the Member of Parliament for Wentworth since 2002. She's the third generation of her family to sit in federal parliament, as we'll hear about in the interview. And she ran on a platform of action on climate change, political integrity and gender equality. We should emphasise... Just to kick off that, look, we are not advocating for any particular political candidates. We're not aligned with any parties, but we were particularly interested in chatting with a couple of recently elected members of parliament for a couple of reasons. As with other guests we speak with this season, we wanted to understand what drew them to this work at this point in their lives, and also if and how they leveraged previous work experience and skills in this new role. But we particularly felt that independent candidates were in a bit of a unique situation because they're not obliged uh, or expected to follow a particular party line. And as a result, they are free to make a large number of decisions when it came to voting in parliament on different issues. Mm. And as you highlighted there, Ken, Allegra, but along with all of the Teal candidates, all have careers outside of politics. So it's a pretty huge decision to change careers, one, but also to go into politics. It's not the easiest profession. So I think even just dissecting that that key decision is really interesting as well. Yeah, definitely. Here we go. First of all, thank you for your time. You've demonstrated tremendous versatility in your professional life. You've worked uh, as a management consultant, as a policy analyst, as well as serving as managing director for the Carlos and Patty fashion label. Can you talk a little bit about how you've navigated those career transition decisions? Look, they're never easy to make career transition decisions. I think the most useful thing I've ever done is trying to get a as good a sense as possible of what this next phase might look like. And so in a couple of transitions, I've actually worked, um, you know, volunteered in an organisation, I've actually done some work shadowing um, to get a sense of does this really suit me because you can think you're interested in one job and then when you actually work in it you can go uh, pretty quickly no this isn't me at all so I think that's probably the most useful thing so for instance after working consulting I wanted to see and in public policy I wanted to see how public policy was really applied in the real world so I I thought I might want to work in a big um, teaching hospital in the UK and so I was very lucky that someone said look you can follow me around for a day as a manager in one of these big teaching hospitals and get a sense of the job and that was extremely useful me. Um, And secondly, when I wanted to move out of the fashion industry into the education sector, I ended up doing some volunteering for a not-for-profit in the education sector. And that, again, gave me the confidence that my skills can be applied here. And, you know, this, this really excites and excites me. 
That's some great advice, I think, because a lot of people would be a bit nervous about making such drastic career shifts, but by the by trying beforehand, it's it's not as big a, a jump. You know what you're getting in for. Exactly right. And look, I often I've often suggested that to people actually when hiring people, I've said, you know, do you want to come in for a day or a couple of days? You know, we'll pay you, but come in and see what the job is like because you know, you don't want to often when you're employing people, it's you know, four weeks, six weeks, up to three months before they can actually come in. And if you think, you know, you both hope you're you're per- a perfect fit, but you aren't always a perfect fit. Yeah, a bit of an adult internship. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> And particularly in in politics, you're obviously the third generation of a family to sit in federal parliament, which is a pretty amazing pedigree. Did you feel like this heritage created a sort of a sense of inevitability about your decision to go into politics or or did it make you more nervous? Look, I I think it made me, it, it made it, I think, easier for me to imagine what it would look like because I had seen my dad in it though you know it's he was there in the sort of late 80s so it's a very different political world um to where now but absolutely not a sense of inevitability I, I think on the other side it is it makes it intimidating um because you know you're different from your parents and your grandparents you know I think to do this job well you have to be your own person you can't be someone who's trying to be something you're not or you know trying to be a you know version of um you know family member I think you really have to have your own cast and certainly standing as an independent both my grandfather and my father ultimately were part of the Liberal Party so that is quite different (laughs) not what I think they were expected. No although they both had uh, elements of independence even being party people in their careers. Yes they they? did. (laughs) Uh, And I guess particularly your decision to go in as a Teal candidate I'm I'm just curious about what what was the catalyst that really pushed you over the edge and made you decide that no you were the person who had to be the change that you wanted to see. Look, I was approached and I was approached by a community group and uh, the, I think the, the big piece for me was to say, look, I think if this is going to be successful, the community really has to get behind this. And this was, you know, a group of people who had already formed saying we need a candidate in this area. We see, we believe, you know, we can make a change here. And so, I, you know, I said, well, look, you know, you should look for the best candidate you possibly can. And, you know, and I actually gave it more to them to say, you know, I'm, I'll be very honest about who I am, what my experience is, where I, you know, my strengths and my weaknesses, but then it's up to you to make sure you've got the best person for the job. Um, and so they really, so they really chose me. I think for me the, to make that decision, I think that the sort of nail in the coffin for me to say, look, I have to do this was the COP26 time where I just realised that the government was not going to move on climate action in in a, in a useful way. And I just felt it you know felt like a moral responsibility that someone had to do something to say you know what this does not represent the views of our community we need to you know make a, a fundamental shift here um to make sure that the views of the community are truly heard in parliament it sounds like values really drive a lot of your your decision making in this career switch and in previous ones would you say that's something that's really important to you absolutely and someone once told me it really stuck with me you know, you should play to your strengths because your strengths give you energy. But if your work is in conflict with your values, it makes you feel sick. And actually, that's, you know, it's very, I think, very hard to be, you know, to do something in deep conflict with your values. I think it's sort of deadening at some level to your soul. And so I think, you know, for me, values has been really important. And where I've gotten the, you know, greatest joy is when I've both played to my strengths and and done things that give me energy, but also I feel very mission driven. I feel very aligned um, with what we're trying to achieve as an organisation. 
Yeah, wonderful. I think that's a, a really good point to emphasize there because we talk to our listeners a lot about decision-making driven by values because um, if you don't make a decision based on that, as you said, you're going to have this sort of internal conflict and you're not going to be happy with the outcome. I agree. So on politics in particular. I will, I will yeah. jump in and say yeah. not all values, um, but, you know, I've made a lot of decisions based on values. doesn't mean that all of them have been good jobs for me. So, for example, I worked for a not-for-profit in Kenya um, because I was very, very much... I think care about you know how do you you know create a just world in the broadest sense, um, but you know my my perspective having worked there was to say look I don't think I am the best person to create a value and uh, in this environment. So if you can be very aligned to your values, doesn't mean actually you're either good at the job or you know or you enjoy it. So you do need that intersection between what your skills are, you know, what you're really good at, where your values are, and then also what is required. Because sometimes, you know, you've got great skills and your very values aligned, but actually the job needs a different sort of person or a different set of skills to the ones you have. And you just have to accept that and say, you know what, that's okay. You know, I can still support this, but I don't have to always be the person in the box seat. That's a very good point. And I guess on the back of that, what, what skills do you see bringing from your, your past experience that's going to make you a really great politician in particular? <laughs> um, look, I think the skills that I have, I think I'm a, I'm, I'm a very good listener and I'm very curious. And I actually think the diversity of my career is a real value for politics because, you know, in, in a single day, you know, I can be talking about refugees, economic policy in a relation to, you know, super or corporations act, environmental policy, you know, or health. It's a it's such a broad remit and it depends so much on what's happening in the day. And so to have actually breadth on a variety of sectors, I think is is really, really important. So, you know, that that ability to listen to experts and take advice, but also that curiosity. And then um I think that, you know, finally to enjoy working with people. Because it's a very people-driven job. You know, I in really enjoyed campaigning and I, I love being out in the community, listening to what's important to people. And I think if you don't like that, um, then you're going to be pretty miserable in this job because that's a huge amount of what you need to do is actually really listen to what's important and then then take action on that. So it sounds like you've got the right, right skill set. When it comes to actually forming policy, how do you see yourself striking that balance between, you know, what you've said is a very principled sort of value-driven approach, but also the pragmatism of getting things passed and, and having to negotiate, which is a part of politics, while representing your yeah. constituents? Yeah. So I think the first piece is you're trying to get your policy view. And so that is, I think, a balance between understanding your perspective, the perspective of the community, but also understanding the perspective of uh, experts in the space and where possible, bringing those two things together as much as possible. So, you know, the views of experts and the view of community um, really come together and are as aligned as much as possible. Um, and that's an education perspective, I think, on, on both sides. And then, you know, you also need to accept that, you know, I'm one of 151 um, members of the House and roughly 220-odd, you know, uh, members of Parliament. And so I won't get my own way the whole time, absolutely. And, you know, so you need to be constructive. And, and you know, my goal is to be constructive, which means working with the government of the day, working with the crossbench, working with the opposition, you know, on where you have um, the same alignment in, in, in what is important, really working issue by issue um, with those different groups. And, you know, I think, you know, I think one of the 
you know, difficult examples of the last decade um, was some of the climate legislation that wasn't passed because it wasn't ambitious enough, you know, by the Greens. And I think that's that was a that was an enormous shame. And I think many people have learned the lessons from that, which is, you know, if, for example, in the current climate legislation, I feel that it should be much stronger but it is much better than where we have been. And so I will support that. And then I will support driving for you know, better legislation and better policy so we can really build on what has already been cemented and achieved. But it is a challenging balance. How do you think your electorate understands, I guess, some of these challenges? There's probably a lot of hope on, on you as a candidate, given you are sort of a, a, a candidate of the people. Is there sort of a, an understanding, do you think, of, of how how you actually go in terms of negotiating? Look, it's my job, I think, to help educate people about the challenges of, you know, those negotiations. And so I think there's a big job for me is, is to make sure that, you know, both the people who really supported me, actually, but the broader electorate knows, you know, what decisions I'm making and why I'm making them. And I'm trying to create as much transparency as I can about what I voted for, you know, what I've spoken on in Parliament, the questions that I've asked. Um, because I think if you have great the transparency and you can justify why you voted or why you said x or y then you know people may not agree with you but they at least recognize that you've got an approach and i think that's really important to people they need to know that they're not you're not blindly following some you know sort of interests of vested interests that you have a, a sort of rationale for how you're addressing policy issues Switching gear a little bit, uh, you've talked a lot about women in leadership you know, mm. in your in your maiden speech, and I'm I'm just curious about what your goals are, what your approach is for actually increasing female representation in politics and in leadership. Mm-hmm. Look, I think um, there are a, a variety of different approaches on this. I think the first piece is is the you know, leading by example and standing up. And actually one of the current, you know, parliamentarians, female parliamentarians who was there in the last parliament said, look, we were, so I was concerned with all the stories that came up out of the last parliament and so many people speaking up. She said, I thought that maybe women just wouldn't wouldn't stand up, they'd be turned off. And I think quite the opposite, you know, we have now the biggest rep- female representation in the parliament that we've ever had. We've got 44% of parliamentarians are women Previously, it was 36%. The previous term before that was 30%. So there's been an absolute transformation in the last two terms. Um, So I think a big part of it is actually is standing up and showing people that you can stand up. And my greatest joys, to be honest, um, to date is talking to, you know, young women or, or people who don't feel represented and saying, you know, you can stand up, you can do things. It's not easy, but there are people who will get behind you um, when you stand up. So I think that sort of visible leadership is absolutely crucial. Then you come to different policy issues. And so I think, you know, you've got things like the respect at work um, legislation and making sure that is implemented from a, you know, from a, a, a culture within within workplaces. Uh, you've, I've been a, a big supporter of the childcare um, legislation the government's going to be put through, but we need to go further in terms of introducing parental leave up to 26 weeks. But crucially, where six weeks of that is use it or lose it for the second parent, which is typically men, because I think that um, we need to change the culture of of how children are raised in in this country if we're truly going to get to gender parity in terms of pay and in terms of representation. You know, you see that with, you know, young women in their careers, you know, where general um, young women are sort of normally high, more highly educated and even starting their careers in much more of a peer relationship with men. But it's actually during the years where people have often have children that you know, this really diverges. And so we need to, I think, as a country, 
recognize that you know child rearing is completely gendered and we need to rethink that if we are going to really address those, those pieces so that's why you know i will continue to drive i think both the childcare um work but also um parental leave i think that's an absolutely crucial lever yeah, that's really interesting. I know it's been quite successful in Scandinavia as a policy that sort of yeah. use it or lose it. And, and it also goes to decision-making too, that uh, often second partners want to contribute to the home, but they feel that the, there's no financial incentive for them too. So kind of putting a bit of a lever there uh, and, and encouraging, I'm sure would help make a lot of second second parents spend more time mm-hmm. with their young children. And this is a this is a benefit not just for gender sort of pay equity and economic um, opportunities for women. This is actually better for um, men's mental health um, and connection with children and child development. Um, and I think you know this. We need to change the culture in workplaces where the expectation goes from, oh, you know, this woman's going to take off time to have kids, which is, you know, these people will take off time to have children, and this is part of how we have to work um, because this is it's you know raising kids is is a great joy. I mean, it's there's enormous you know, frustration and, and, you know, sometimes it's it's very tedious, you know, changing nappies and all the stuff that goes on with it. But it's also one of the most beautiful, wonderful, enriching things you can do in your life. And the more that that is shared, I think the better for all of us. And this would be the natural point where I'd ask you how you how you balance being a mum and a politician. But I'm, I'm actually going to put a pin in that and just make a broad comment that your male colleagues almost never get asked this question. So I'm not going to say anything other than I'm sure no. it's very hard. <laughs> No, actually, I think what I was going to say to you is I think you should ask the question, but you should ask it to men and women because every person who has family, and, you know, it's not just children, you know, people have parents they're caring for, you know, they have, um, you know, outside pursuits they really are passionate about, maybe it's volunteering, you know, it is, you know, it is difficult to balance demanding work and personal commitments. It is always hard. And so I think actually, so my view is that you can ask me that question and make sure you ask the next man you interview as well. And, you know, I'd say that it's not easy. And some days it's very difficult. I'll be honest, my my little one, my youngest child has a, you know, it has diarrhea at the moment. And you know, so I'm half the night looking after him and then trying to come to, to work today. And, you know, it's oh, that's, that's life. But you know, that's, and so I don't think there are any silver bullets. I think it's a whole bunch of small changes you try and make to do what most important that the kids and family most value and draw draw quite strong boundaries around that Um, but at the same time allow yourself to love something that's important and that's how I think about this work. And now this continually shift into personal life do you see your decision making is different in your personal versus professional life or do you bring the same approach to both? When I make the best decisions I try and be really curious about them I think, and, you know, some decision-making theory, which I've read, which I think is always a good one, um, is to have multiple options. So often we make decisions which are black or white, say, you know, you do this, you don't do this. And it's like, well, actually, maybe you, maybe there are three options here or four options, um, because that can help tease out more nuanced options, you know, to say, well, you know, you do this now, or you do this in, you know, two years time and in the meantime you do x because I think that you know so try and make things less binary I don't always (laughs) do it you know and I think there are all sorts of books on all of our biases natural biases in relation to decision making but I think trying to create options is always is always a good one Uh, I don't mean that in relation to marriage or stuff like that so (laughs) you know I could choose him or him or him but you know like um, probably more more other options Uh, we, we got very similar advice from the CEO of Teach for Australia and she said that she often tried oh, okay. to, to 
to, to make decisions that would actually open more doors rather than close them. So yeah, I think, I think it's that's very right. Nice. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we say goodbye? No, look, I just wanted to say it's, I think choosing, making choices in careers is, has been a real, I think, real challenge you know, for me in, in my my time. Um, and I, I the only piece of advice I'll pass on is a piece of advice my mum gave me, which she said, Allegra, people always love being asked for advice. It flatters them. So, you know, never be afraid to ask somebody, you know, for, you know, to say, look, can I have, you know, 10 minutes of your time to ask your advice on, on this? And do that with some people who have different views, you know, and perhaps have quite different views to you. Um, because I think that you, it gives you a different perspective, even if you don't agree with it. I've got a little group of people who I talk to about, um, you know, what I'm doing in politics and their perspective on it. And I'm deliberately choosing people who have quite different perspectives on the world. Some who are, for example, in political terms or economic terms, much more left-wing, some people who are much more right-wing, um, because I want diversity of views on the room, because I think if you truly have diversity of views in the room, then you you get the wide range of perspectives rather than the sort of echo chamber, which, you know, you can so often get in social media. So my view is ask for advice um, and ask for diversity of advice. You know, ask different types of people and different, you know, different ages, different perspectives. Thank you so much. That's something that we at How to Choose echo uh, entirely. It's basically the premise of our podcast. So thank you so much for your time and for your advice. Truly appreciated. Absolute pleasure, Tess. Thanks so much for having me. So Ken, what did you think? Well, look, I was, I was very impressed. Actually, I don't know about you, Tess, but impressed to um, to understand what uh, Allegra has achieved professionally uh, in her life. I'm always excited to hear about uh, people who are passionate about issues, regardless of of how they view things. It's it's impressive to hear people who are passionate. But the thing that I particularly appreciated was her ability and willingness to reflect on how she thinks about decision-making, which, of course, is what we talk about on our show, How to Choose. So she was um, she was also very down-to-earth and quite open as she was chatting about the challenges of parenting for whether, whether you're a mum or a dad looking after kids. Yeah, I really enjoyed, as I flagged before the interview, her insights about career transition decisions and the idea that it's pretty daunting to change career as an adult. Um, you and I have done it multiple times, Ken, but it's still daunting every time. But that you don't have to just go in blindly, that you can, you know, you can almost do the internship model. So you can volunteer, you can even just ask to shadow someone, but get a sense of what you're actually getting in, into before committing. I think the thing I liked about that as well is that she had the uh, willingness to explore something that wasn't necessarily on the table. And I think we can easily limit ourselves. Uh, you know, we no one's asked us if we'd like to come and try. Uh, so we don't even conceive of it as an option. So I think just being willing to ask. Uh, but also she talked about being willing to offer it to people who she was potentially interested in employing. And I think it's a great way to test out a job before you make a decision. Uh, another thing that I really liked, Tess, too, was hearing about her views on being a third-generation politician. And I think you'd asked her in the interview, did this make it easier for her uh, or did it create a sense of obligation or duty? And the thing that she said was that for her, uh, it just made it seem like this was something that was possible. And I think that there's that's certainly true when we're making decisions, there's certainly some truth in the fact that it helps us tremendously to see somebody else that we know doing something when we're considering that as an option. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, completely. Yeah, we actually uh, have a future interview coming up with the CEO and she talks about um, someone that she met who was amazing at maths, went to university, did maths, and someone suggested they do engineering, but they'd never even heard of what an engineer was. You know, right. so it was completely outside the realm of their what, what was possible. So I think that, that that's an extreme version. H- having a, a politician in your family definitely makes it a lot easier to make that career seem a lot more possible. Yeah, and I think, look, obviously we don't get to choose our relatives, um, but we can choose our networks and we can put effort into building a, a range of, of relationships with people who are doing different kinds of jobs. So if you're in a position where you're thinking about different job options, reach out, start to get to know people. And and I think it's it, it does two things. It gives you information about the job. It gives you, and that kind of makes it a bit more real, but you're also engaging with a real real life person who's already kind of broken the ice and, and maybe blazed the trail in that particular profession. So maybe that might make it a little easier when you think about uh, taking on that challenge yourself. Actually, and on the back of that, Ken, uh, if you're in a position of experience or influence, perhaps you should volunteer and offer to someone maybe who's starting out in their career or might not have great you know, natural networks to give them that, that insight and that access. If there's any would-be podcasters out there, we're very happy to, to chat and, and do some work with you too. So please, yeah. please network away. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's great. And I'm and look, I know we're both big believers in mentoring. It helps to open people's eyes to opportunities that they might not otherwise be aware of, but it also, you you can be a real champion and encourager to to someone else who maybe just needs a little boost. And another thing that I really enjoyed was how honest she was about her strengths and weaknesses. It was such a great approach. And there's no point pretending to be something that you're not. You know, you might be able to convince someone in a job interview, but at some point when you're actually having to do the job, you will be exposed. And I think this is a really great point because you really need to be focusing on the work being a good fit for you rather than just climbing the ladder arbitrarily. Yeah. Look, I think that's a fantastic point, Tess. It's easy when you're applying for a job to see it almost, and because it is often a competitive process, you see it as a competition and you move into competition mindset, which is all about, I want to win the job. But in fact, what you should be doing is, of course, you want to present yourself in a compelling way that gives you a good chance and opens opportunities. But what you want to be doing is exploring the job. You want to understand what it's like and you want to see whether you would be a good fit for that job because that's in your best interests as well as in the best interests of the employer. And I think that is a nice segue into the, the comment that uh, Allegra made when you were talking about values. And she started off by saying, look, work that conflicts with values can deaden your soul. And we certainly know that's true. Um, If you're doing something that clashes with your values or doesn't represent those deep values, you can be left deeply dissatisfied and discouraged at work. But she made a point of saying, it's not just enough to find something that aligns with your values. Uh, You need to consider other options. You know, that alignment of values might not still not mean that that job is a great fit for you and your skill set. So again, I think you mentioned this test, that level of self-awareness that she talked about and just clearly displayed is critical when you're making these decisions. A self-aware person is usually also a humble person, but it's also a person who's willing to think, oh, am I a, a good fit for this position? Yeah, that's so true, Ken. And the final thing that I really took away was 
the idea of asking for advice and opinions from people who see the world differently to you. You know, you can do it in a really basic sense just by not reading the same news media outlets that you go to and actually forcing yourself to go and read the other side. But I think also just talking to people uh, from a range of perspectives because you've got to be open to changing your mind as well. You can't just go in ready, ready to have arguments. You've got to be willing to take on these different perspectives. But I think that's a great advice and probably something we could we could all do a little bit more of. Yeah. And um, she certainly talked about that, that, you know, when you asked her, well, what, what are your skills <laughs> that you bring to this work? She said, look, I'm a good listener. And I think we could all uh, do well with working on our listening skills. I know I certainly could. So Tess, what's your key takeaway then from this episode? So actually the one that you mentioned just before about values and them not being enough by themselves. So we kind of harp on a lot about values. They've got to fit with your skills and your interests, you know, your capability. Doing a passion project alone isn't enough. You do need to make sure that it's sort of a practical fit for you as well. Yeah, that's really good. I think for me, it was something uh, else that came out in the, in the interview when Allegra said, you know, try not to view decision-making simply as a binary process. And binary, you know, it's a yes or no, or it's uh, this or that, you know, it's the two option uh, approach. And she said, you know, think more broadly, look outside the box. Are there other options there? Can you consider this option as maybe not now, but something that you could do in the future? And I, I think um, it, it come, coming back to the book that we are uh, spruiking this season, The Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. Julia Galef says in it, there are lots of ways to change the game board that you're playing on so that you end up with better choices instead of simply resigning yourself to picking the least bad choice currently in front of you. So I like that, you know, expand your set of options wherever you can. And it makes decision-making a little bit more difficult if there's more options there, but ultimately you might find one that's a better fit. Yeah. Look, we didn't say this was called how to make decisions easily. We just said it was about how to choose. So yeah. <laughs> that's right. Very well said. Well, look, if you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to How to Choose and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And tell your friends about us. We'd love to meet them too. Sharing what we've learning is also an awesome way to reinforce those lessons. So tell your friends what you've learned today. Well, excellent. That was fascinating, Tess. Uh, and well done, I should say, on a great interview. Um, who are we going to be chatting with next week? So next week, we're talking to a property investor. Uh, and this is actually one of yours, Ken. So what have Ooh. we got to look forward to? So look, we're chatting with a guy called Lachlan Bidler. And Lachlan is a really impressive young man. I can say that as a slightly older than young man. Uh, he's a very impressive young guy who has started his own business, uh, his property investment business, along with his partner. And he chats about a range of issues relating to decision making. He talks about some of the things that we've picked up on in season one. Uh, we talk about the role of emotions. We talk about intuition and how it can help or hinder. So I think you'll find it very interesting. And he gives some good tips for anyone who's interested in investing in property. I need a lot of advice in that area, Ken, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs>